Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the TSP's latest IT upgrade is in its biggest upgrade. Converge is an enormous amount of work (laughs) because it really involves sort of every participant-facing thing we do and the data for 6.5 million participants. One of the Pentagon's tools to defend against Log4j could work for your agency next time. It's absolutely something that could be replicated at at other federal agencies, and and I I hope that we're able to proliferate that beyond just just DOD and DHS. And zero trust success depends on sticking to the basics. Where I've seen the, uh, the most advancement in delivering modern technologies to on a mission, right, on the mission objectives, is really where the the experts that are making the decisions about policies are taking a look at those policies and going, does this make sense? It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored today by VMware. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Citizen satisfaction with the federal government's at an all-time low, according to new numbers from the American Customer Satisfaction Index. The federal government fell to an index of 63.4 out of 100 in 2021. It fell in each of the four categories the index measures to process, information, customer service, and websites. The Internal Revenue Service will look for ways to buy more like a venture capitalist. The IRS's senior advisor for enterprise digitalization, Mitch Winans, says his agency could add more services to its pilot IRS system for technology upgrades. Winans says Pilot IRS already has nine projects in progress. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. Three new IT systems are in place at the Thrift Savings Plan. Those systems replace four legacy systems. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Four for three sounds like a pretty good trade, especially when you get other benefits. Kim, what are some of the other benefits that you expect to realize from the financial systems modernization at the TSP? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. It's good to be here. Um, First of all, we are getting rid of very dated legacy systems, and that is awesome. But what is really great about the three new systems, we will have integrated financial systems. So it is really minimizing um, manual input, moving data from one system to another, which of course reduces data errors. Um, And it also gives our CFO and the rest of the agency, a single source of truth on our financials. Um, The other systems worked fine, but they just required that extra effort, that extra work that these systems will eliminate. I note that the new systems are Oracle, Federal, Financials, Prism, and E2. Are those off-the-shelf systems? Are those systems that were available and just needed to be tweaked maybe for the demands of the TSP? Or are those systems that someone uh, created for the TSP? They are completely off the shelf. We went with um, Interior Business Center and Interior Business, uh, it's an IAA managed services and Interior Business Service uh, Business Center offers these to any federal agency interested. And so they were not, um, they were not programmed for us. They were not tweaked for us because IBC is running them for a whole bunch of people. And so again, that is a huge benefit, right? Because 
when Prism decides to update their software, uh, Interior will take care of it, and there's no uh, specialization that has to be done for us. Uh, this is part of an overall modernization effort that you've undertaken over the last couple of years. You and I have talked about it a number of times. And I think out of the monthly board meeting, the thing that it's two things that jumped out at me, but uh, the thing that jumped out at me about the uh, modernization effort is that Converge with the app and all of the other features of that Converge is this, this the, the kind of the brand name that you've put on the modernization efforts right on track and you're headed for the middle of this year to, to finish it up. We are. We are moving forward um, nicely with Converge. FSM, the the modernization we were just talking about, was an enormous amount of work. And then Converge is an enormous amount of work <laughs> because it really involves sort of every participant-facing thing we do and the data for 6.5 million participants. So it's just it is a lot, um, but we are on track to go live in the summer. One of the things that uh, one of the reasons that that struck me as particularly important is that you're uh, you're really connecting securely with every federal agency that you can, and and you're uh, pretty far down the road. Expect it, I, I understand, to be completed with that by March first, and you'll have secure connections for exchanging that information automatically with every agency. Right. We and again we have we have a system now. It is secure. I don't want anyone thinking it isn't. Fair but enough. Yes. Um, yes. But the the secure connect that we're doing is with the new vendor. And obviously the system doesn't work unless we're getting the data and the money in from the the employing agencies. So getting that system up, tested and ready to go is obviously very key to making the whole thing work. All right. The other thing that I thought was important, I was going to say didn't have anything to do with IT. Maybe it does indirectly because the capabilities that you're adding are allowing you to reduce the fees on the thrift savings plan again. I mean, one of the big one of the big things that people even outside government, people that don't have anything to do with the federal government, talk about, brag about, about the TSP all the time, lowest fees by far anywhere in the industry. And, and they're coming down again. How, what what's the deal there? We uh, spend money very wisely. That is one of our credos at the at the agency, and so we had anticipated because we were basically running two uh, record ki- keeping systems last year, as we had the legacy system and we're getting converge ready. We anticipated that that would cost more than it did, so we had predicted a higher. Um, uh, uh, basis point net uh, expenses, administrative expenses. Sorry, that wasn't clear at all. We had predicted a higher administrative expenses. And as it turned out, we and the vendors were able to get it done for less. So our net um, expense ratio is 4.3 basis points, which is um, 4.3 cents per thousand. All right. Um, I tell stories on my guests sometimes. And so okay. it's only fair that when I do something dumb that I tell a story on myself. I sent you an email about two weeks ago, and it was a link to an article in the Wall Street Journal. And the headline is TIAA offers annuity product for corporate 401k retirement plans. 
Uh, American workers who crave steady retirement paychecks in the absence of old-fashioned pension plans are getting more alternatives as another money manager launches an annuity offering for corporate 401k retirement savings plans. Uh, TIAA will offer uh, lifetime payouts for retirees and on and on and on. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes today. And I sent this link to you, and I think that I think the title line of my email was how long question mark. And then I sent you the link and said, how long until Congress makes you offer this in the TSP? And you responded, Kim, by saying what? I said the TSP has been um, offering annuities in plan since 1987. Um, it was a feature that was was put into the plan by Congress from the very get-go. So, and I read that email and I thought, I know if, I mean, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a financial planner and I don't work for the TSP like you, but I know a little bit about the TSP. Yes, you do. And I had no idea that that existed. Where on your website does one go to see all of the possibilities? Because I know all about the funds and I know all about the life cycle funds and all of that. And I imagine if I don't know that that possibility exists, there are probably other people that know that that possibility or that don't know that that possibility exists. Where would you suggest that people go when they want to see all a comprehensive list of all the things that are possible with their TSP accounts? Well, on our website, there is a use your savings uh, tab. And it says, and if you click on that, it says living in retirement. And you can click on that and it gives you the options that you have um, with the TSP. And the withdrawal options would be installment payments, which are monthly, quarterly, or annual. Um, A single withdrawal, so you take out whatever you know, lump sum you want or all of it, and then annuity purchases. And it has that information right there on the withdrawal options. And there is a booklet that provides more information. So two passages from this article that just in, in learning this information really made me laugh about my naivete. And one passage is lifetime income offerings are starting to take off in the 401k market in the wake of a 2019 law that protects employers that follow certain procedures from being sued if they select an insurer that later fails to make annuity payments. And the other one is uh, these payments pay higher monthly income than employees can typically get in the individual annuities market. um, And it it explains why. And you've been doing it since 1987. So shows what I know. Well, I have to say it is not a popular offering. Um, last year in 20, it's it's roughly less than 1% of our withdrawal people select that. Yeah. Um, and it, as an illustration, in 2020, 403 participants purchased an annuity and 20,112 began installment payments. So um, I want to be clear that when you buy an annuity, the money transfers from the TSP to MetLife, who's the, pro- the provider, um, and that's an irrevocable transfer. Yes. And so for, for FERS participants who have Social Security and a FERS-defined benefit, a lot of times people don't feel the need for that third sort of fixed yeah. um, income stream. But then there are others who feel that it is a benefit. And obviously, that's a completely individual choice based on whatever else 
is going on in their life. Yeah. One of my friends who actually is a financial advisor uh, told me once that uh, the thing to remember is when you buy an annuity, you buy an annuity. You, you don't rent it. You can't give it back if you decide you don't want it someday. Exactly right. Yeah. All right. Listen, thanks for setting me straight so kindly. And, and You're very welcome. Letting me down easy. Kim Weaver, the TSP. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to the TSP site Kim talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. One of the Defense Department's most important tools to fight the Log4J vulnerability is a contract. And that contract vehicle could be a tool other agencies can use against future vulnerabilities. Katie Olson's the acting director of the Defense Digital Service. Katie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the triage process like when you learned about the Log4J vulnerability where you decided that this was an appropriate time to stretch this bug bounty program? Welcome. Thanks for having me on. The Log4J vulnerability was a crisis event that required rapid response. And it's the first time that we've ever deployed our bug bounty program against an emerging cyber threat. Uh, even though we've been running the Hack the Pentagon program since 2018, this was the, the first time that in response to you know, an event like Solar Winds, or in this case, Log4j, um, we pivoted to be able to, um, to, deploy, to deploy our existing contracting and engineering talent uh, to spin up a, a bug bounty that would allow private sector um, or sort of the, the hacker community writ large um, to take a look at, at this vulnerability. What did you have to think about from an authority's perspective, a governance perspective, to know that you were able to stretch this into something that was actually happening now, you know, that this was such an urgent thing? I love that question because it builds on an earlier success from, from last year where we worked with um, the Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, DC3, to expand the vulnerability disclosure program or the, the VDP, which allows outside hackers, so hackers, ethical researchers outside of, outside of DOD to report on a vulnerability without sort of any fear of, of penalty or retribution. So because we had previously expanded the, uh, the VDP and it made it possible for, um, for outside ethical hackers to report something, that allowed us the authority to spin this up really quickly um, and expose you know, various DoD assets to the community and have them report, report vulnerabilities back to us. What's the broader lesson to learn here from bug bounty programs in general. I mean, it, it strikes me that one of the things as an outside observer that I see is it's probably a good idea to have these things going on an ongoing basis instead of saying, starting date certain, we're going to do this for a certain period of time. Am I interpreting it correctly, do you think, Katie? Absolutely. When we, when we started the, the uh, Hacks Pentagon program in 2016, the idea of doing a bug bounty at all was pretty novel. And it took a lot of what we call business development and you know, working with the services to really encourage purposeful exposure of their assets to, um, to ethical researchers, ethical hackers. But now what we're seeing is that has become commonly accepted. And to your point, we want to encourage you know, the services, DOD writ large, to be running continuous bounties on various systems and assets. 
at the same time, we do need to think about some of these more, what, what a plan is for some of these more bespoke um, opportunities that, that might emerge. So one of the things that we've talked about coming out of um, the Log4j vulnerability is having maybe a fund set aside so that we, you know, if, if there is, if and when the next vulnerability comes, we are able to, we have the contracting and funding set aside to be able to pay out a bounty. Uh, and we also, um, because we're, we're sort of running, you know, in parallel, ideally we're, you know, to your point, we're sort of running these continuous bounties on bread and butter bounties on everyday assets. We're able to, to focus more on this unique vulnerability. So I think it, I think what we've learned from this is we should be doing the continuous, but we also need to have sort of rainy day funding and contracting in place to be able to spin up. Uh, our response as quickly as we did uh, in this case. Yeah, I don't know if it's just the nerd in me, Katie, or what, but it, the thing that jumped out at me as I read about this in preparing to talk to you today was the bug bounty piece is, is fascinating and the bug bounty piece is so important. But I, my eyes went right to the remarks that you've made about the contracting that you have in place and the vehicle mm -hmm. that is available to you to be able to do this, because I, I guess it, for so long in, in trying to solve these kinds of problems in government, that was the holdup. The technologists knew where the technology problem was and right. it, where industry was needed to help them, industry was standing by to do that. And it was on the acquisition part of it where the boat hit the rocks. Exactly. And we, we've had, through our High Fed and Gun program, we've had an IDIQ open um, with a couple of ethical um, and security research firms. And so when the Log4j vulnerability um, you know, came to light, we had the contracting mechanism in place. But that, that was sort of, I don't want to say it was a fluke, but it's, it's not always going to be the case. We happen to have um, you know, a contract vehicle in place because we were running another bug bounty on, on a different set of assets. So we were able to modify the contracts really quickly. Um, but if you were starting from scratch and if you were a federal agency that wanted to run, run a bug bounty and you had to start, you know, start the contracting process with these outside firms that source ethical hackers, it, it could take months. Um, so I, I, there's a, there's a really, there's a really important lesson to be learned here about having the, the contracting vehicle in place. And that's another thing, in addition to dedicated funding that I think we should be prepared for in the future, um, short of, of sort of overhauling our entire acquisition process, I think having the, the vehicle in place allowed us, you know, it went from what could have been months to two days. I think you could get some votes for overhauling the entire acquisition process, Katie, but that's yeah. a conversation for another day. Um, this question's probably more philosophical or conceptual than it is uh, tactical or technological. How comprehensive can a bug bounty program be? It, how do you measure, well, we think they got a lot of them, or we think they got most of the vulnerabilities that we have in a particular area, or is that not knowable? Well, the ideally a bug bounty works hand in hand with some kind of continuous scanning software. Um, and what, what having both components in place allows you to do. So you have software that's, you know, continuously scanning um, for vulnerabilities in the system, but then you have, you know, outside, you have actual people that are either taking some of the vulnerabilities that the, the, the scanning picked up um, or sort of separate things. And, and you're, they're sort of working as checks and balances against one another. 
Um, and that can give you a pretty comprehensive picture um, of how vulnerable your assets might be because you both have you know, this kind of continuous scanning that's done by machine, um, but then you have um, a real person that's validating um, and kind of showing exactly how, um, you know, they're, they're showing, they're showing their, their math by hand, if you will, um, and walking through and exactly how that vulnerability um, you know, is, is playing out. So that can give you, I think the combination of, of human and machine is, can give you a pretty good sense of, of where you're at. I read you paid uh, competitors in the bug bounty 500 bucks for each uncovered vulnerability and an additional 500 if it's proven the weakness can be exploited. I, I guess you can't say how many vulnerabilities you found, how much you paid out, because I'm not that terrible at math. Um, <laughs> but is there any way that you can talk about the scope of either what people looked at or what they found? Yeah. So we can't, yeah, we can't necessarily say at this time about, um, you know, how many vulnerabilities that we, we found. I will say that we received multiple reports within the first 24 hours of launching. And in fact, some within the first 30 minutes of launching. Um, so there, there was an immediate, um, you know, as soon as we um, started the bounty, you know, immediately got, got feedback. Um, you know, what we were able to do um from a DOD perspective is look at, you know, everything on a, on a dot mill. We also worked with DHS. Um, so a number of, of uh, DDS alumni have gone over and then, you know, their next, their next job is as DHS. And we worked with them to be able to spin up a similar bug bounty. So that, um, that extended, you know, created another bug bounty at DHS, which allowed them to cover DHS assets. So, you know, not all of government, but, Having both DoD and DHS assets exposed to the um, to the researcher community got us a lot of the way there. Um, other agencies are starting to spin these up, Katie. You mentioned DHS, and there are others that are looking at bug bounties or starting to act on them. Is there something about the contracting piece that we talked about earlier as being kind of new or unique that might work at other agencies? Or is there something peculiar about the Pentagon's acquisition process that would make that more difficult? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I think it's it's. I think we've really honed and refined the contracting vehicle that we use um, with outside research firms. And I think it's, it's absolutely something that could be replicated at, at other federal agencies. And, and I, I hope that we were able to proliferate that beyond just, just DOD and DHS. Katie Olson of the Defense Digital Service, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. You can read more about DDS's Log4J response in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Wednesday's show, the Veterans Benefits Administration's chief financial officer is here. Charles Tapp will tell you how his agency's modernizing its systems and its culture to serve veterans better. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Navy is already down the path of its zero trust efforts. The principal cyber advisor at the Navy, Chris Cleary, says his service started on its zero trust journey before the White House executive order on cyber ordered it. Alexander Romero's director of strategy and the chief technologist office at VMware End User Computing, VMware sponsoring today's Daily Scoop podcast. Alexander, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. 
the Navy is just one example of an organization that's converting this into an amorphous term, a buzzword, into action. What are you seeing agencies doing that are doing that well to really convert this from something that's written down on paper to something that they're actually doing? Welcome. Uh, thank you very much. So what we're seeing is a, a good tactical approach to breaking down zero trust into different component sets. So if we think about how do you provide zero trust to organizations that have got you know thousands, tens of thousands, millions of endpoints, as well as workloads, you put those into five different buckets. So begin with device trust. That's important to understand, is the device trusted? Next into user trust, another huge bucket. Uh, then you look at the network and you think about network or transport session trust. Uh, from there, you move on to application trust, right? These are where the workloads are trusting. And then even down to the data level, data trust. So what we're seeing with agencies is the ability to break down these different components and then begin to put in place technologies that can support zero trust in each of those different areas. What does a proactive approach to each of those five pieces mean and how does an agency effectively do that, Alexander? Yeah, so a uh, proactive approach is, uh, you know, it's kind of like, how do, you eat, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Mm -hmm. So it's really thinking about among the, if we go back a little bit into what I'd say many agencies are used to, is they're very much used to a castle and moat type of security approach. And the castle being, right, all the data, all the access, everything being behind this great security moat. And what we're seeing is with the evolution of, of cloud adoption and cloud technologies is the ability to begin granting access only to the devices that need those access and the people that need those access and even the network that needs those access uh, at the right time, right, at the right place. And so the kind of tactical approach is beginning to say, okay, even as we have got what seems like a uh, infinite amount of legacy technologies um, proceeding with, you know, technologies that enable from the start those zero trust principles is very much so the way to go. And wherever possible, then, you know, beginning to transition out of the old and into the new. You laid out those five pillars, as VMware calls them, five pillars of zero trust architecture. And we have a link uh, to some of the work that you've done in the show notes today at the daily scoop podcast.com. Are those linear steps, Alexander is, is so for, would the first thing an agency do when they're walking down this path be device trust and then user trust and so on, or is the technique, the execution steps, does that look different than those five pillars? Uh, the execution is going to be different for every agency. I wish there was one way, one magic kind of set of steps that was a nice waterfall diagram that got them there to zero trust. But the reality is that uh, these agencies have got very complex missions, um, ranging from the intelligence community to Department of Defense to civilian agencies. And so those needs vary quite a bit, as does the technology supporting each of those different ones. If you look at something, um, let's say, like training programs, right? Training programs in the army may be very different than training programs in the uh, in civilian agencies or at NASA, and they might be on different technology journeys. So a lot of it is thinking about, okay, well, where are the places where we, you know, as an, org as an agency can, like everyone's asking, get the most bang for our buck in both improving security and delivering 
um, you know, modern capabilities uh, to our mission. And so when I th- when we think about that, right, there's actually a good example of a law enforcement group um, that we have a reference to. And that law enforcement group was able to enable applications on iPhones, as an example, um, building, you know, in a zero trust framework. And those applications could be as simple as collecting crime scene data, looking at shift schedules and being able to know uh, which areas they're supposed to be um, uh, gathering community information on. And just even the deployment of that technology and then enabling access to it made a huge improvement in the way they were serving the community, that uh, law enforcement agency. You know what? As you were describing that too, Alexander, it occurs to me, I might have been thinking about this the wrong way because when I think about where agencies start, I'm, I guess I kind of assume an agency starting at zero and you use the term different technology journeys. Everybody's at a different place. They might have some of the elements in place already for a successful zero trust transition or they might not. So maybe I guess everybody's journey will be different depending on where they start from and what they have to start with too, right? Correct. And the larger they are, the more complex they're going to be. Um, in many cases, uh, and I'd say most uh, you know, federal government agencies are fall into this boat. They've got different teams for desktop, um, different teams for network, for user security, even for um, policies and procedures. So trying to orchestrate and string all that together um, and move, you know, and move things towards zero trust, very, you know, very difficult. Um, a lot of it begins with, okay, setting up those pillars and then kind of distributing the goals down to say, okay, let's see with our devices and user devices to start out with. That's an area that I'm, I'm very familiar with and end user computing um, there. What, what do we have in place? Okay. Where are the gaps? Are we already doing some of these uh, zero trust capabilities? Basic things like, is the operating system up to date? Or how about this? You know, has this device checked in? Do we have a, a do we kind of have quote a heartbeat on it, so to speak, in the last six months? Well, wait a minute, let's start figuring out why are there so many devices that are, you know, offline. I'm just using some anecdotal examples because there are hundreds or thousands of these use cases or anecdotal examples. One could just be devices that are, you know, hanging as displays, right, inside of an airport, right, or somewhere else. And it's like, well, wait a minute, is it possible for those devices to run some form of malicious code? You know, these days, absolutely. How do we make sure and bring that picture uh, together of everything that's going on in the environment. Um, those five pillars of zero trust architecture that you talked about earlier, Alexander, reinforces in my mind uh, a problem that CIOs, CISOs, CTOs tell me about just about every time I talk to somebody about what they're thinking about about security. And that is the culture or the mindset of their organization, not the technology. I mean, the way you lay out the technology that's available, that's doable, and that's that's implementable. The problem is, and you mentioned that moat concept earlier, mm-hmm. moving the view of their employees, moving the view of the way people think about what they're doing to the, the zero trust mindset is probably harder for a lot of those folks. At least they tell me that it's as challenging for them, if not more challenging than the actual plugging the stuff together and making it work. Yeah, where I've seen the uh, the most advancement in delivering modern technologies to on a mission, right on the mission objectives, is really where the the experts that are making the decisions about policies are 
taking a look at those policies and going, does this make sense? All right. Very abstract concepts. So let me bring it down a little bit. So if you think about something like a, a STIG, a standard technical implementation guide, right? That may have been written, you know, years ago or a few years ago, and based on certain standards and operating procedures that made sense in a very PC-centric world, right? Where I've seen success is when um, is when decision makers look at the principles of, okay, why was this technical implementation guide said to specify this control in this way? And then they say, okay, well, that's because the NIST standard says that you need this form of encryption in order to wipe things out. Uh, then you say, okay, well, is that same control available on a modern platform? And they say, well, yes, it is. Well, if it is, then why do we need these 12 other controls? Does that make sense? So it's like in the old world, well, we needed 12 controls because we couldn't quite meet that guideline. But in the new world, we don't need those 12 controls. So stop trying to put those 12 controls on top of the main important one, which is that the device, the encryption keys are thrown away, never to be seen again. And as a result, uh, you meet that NIST standard. So when, when, when leaders have gone to that level of depth to say, does this policy really make sense? Um, and then gone to the kind of root of it, right? The NIST standards, then they can say, wait a minute, I think there's a better way to deploy these technologies, have a faster uh, outcome and better mission outcomes because we're getting, right? At the end of the day, when I think about end user computing, it means that we, it, it's the idea of, for someone to be able to, in most cases, do their mission, they need to be able to interact with some store of record on the back end. And so the more difficult that is, the more hoops, the more you know VPNs that have to be joined, bad network drop, et cetera, passwords, the harder it is for them to do and, and succeed in their mission. The easier they can get access to whatever system of record is needed to do their mission and then process through that, the faster and better the mission outcomes are going to be. Alexander Romero, VMware. Great conversation. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can read more about the move to zero trust in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Wednesday on the Daily Scoop podcast, Charles Tapp, CFO of the Veterans Benefits Administration's here. That show debuts Wednesday afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.